Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Uh, my name is Tim, I'm an alcoholic. Tim, uh, the reading, perhaps unconventionally for step three, is from Bill's story. Uh, there I humbly offered myself to God, as I then understood him, to do with me as he would. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, but without him I was lost. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away, root and branch. I have not had a drink since. Um, A little bit of background about me before I get on to step three. Uh, It's always good to know that uh, a bit of the context of the person that's yakking at you. Also, it's possible there are people in their early days who haven't yet taken the steps. They're not sure if AA is for them. And who may not have taken steps one and two. Step three makes no sense without one and two. So I have to mention one and two. Um, I'm from London. My home group is the Brick Lane Big Book Study, which tells you all you need to know. It, it does. It's in Brick Lane. And we studied it. I wanted it changed a few years ago to Big Book Experience. Because I don't like the idea we're just studying the book like it's a textbook. It is a textbook, but the point is to then learn whatever the textbook is teaching you and go and do it. So if you're learning carpentry, you don't study the carpentry textbook forever. (laughs) At some point, you have to start learning. You have to go and make a chair. Um, A chair that people will want to sit on. (laughs) That's the... And that, that's a, just a whole metaphor for AA. Um, but anyway, for better or for worse, the group decided that it wanted to stick with the name, so we've stuck with the name. Uh, my date of sobriety is the 24th of July, 1993. To save anyone doing uh, any maths, I was 21 when I got sober. I'm 48 now. Yes, it does add up. Just about. Um, and I didn't have my last drink until I'd been going to AA for six months. Um, my last drinking episode, I think I'm going to use to illustrate what happens uh, to me when I have a drink and how I, how I know I'm powerless over alcohol and what that actually means. Um, the idea that afternoon, that Saturday afternoon, was I was going to be going to an AA meeting in the evening. I was at an AA meeting at lunchtime. <laughs> It was a delightful meeting, I'm sure. I wasn't emotionally present for it. I was aware I was aware of voices over there. I took my turn to speak. Um spent the next few minutes considering the impact of what I'd said on on the meeting and left before it finished. And I thought I'm gonna be going to a meeting this evening anyway, so I might as well just have a few drinks between now and then to take the edge off. I'm bored. What else are you going to do on a Saturday afternoon? Seemed completely logical. Um, what happened was I had a couple of drinks. I bought a bottle. I drank the whole bottle. 
um, I threw myself in front of the car, I was run over, I was arrested. Now, what are the lessons of this? The first, <laughs> the first lesson is that um, I don't have an off button. Um, I did not enjoy being run over. I did, I did not enjoy being arrested. I got a little bit of a kick out of talking myself out of being charged. I'll admit that. There's a little, little moment of, of, of satisfaction. But I was not having fun. I didn't have the second half of the bottle of whatever it was because I was enjoying the effect. I had already got the effect. The question was always, why did I have the second bottle of gin? Why did I have the third bottle of wine? And the effect of alcohol on me emotionally doesn't explain that. Because I would, I would have a, a, a grand old time for the first couple of hours, you know, three quarters of the way through the bottle of gin. It was still having an effect. Why did I have another half bottle on top of that? It was like, it's like, it's like water at that point. And the only satisfactory reason, because I was like that when I was reasonably sane at the beginning of my drinking, I was like that when I was completely insane at the end. I was like that when I was happy, when I was sad, when things were going my way, things were not going my way. So this notion of a physical craving for me is simply, I'm constitutionally built to drink until all of the alcohol has gone. And if I'm built that way, my body doesn't know that I've had a spiritual awakening. If I were to drink again, my body would do what it's always done, which is to drink until there's nothing left. Good. So we now know from this, I should never have the first drink. However, I've got a second problem. Apart from the faulty off button, I've got a faulty on button. It flicks on without me flicking it on. And it is it is as though my brain is telling me, you're going to drink. You can argue with me for a while, but... You're just delaying the inevitable. My history by the age of 18 told me I should never drink, and yet I persistently drank day after day after day between the ages of 18 and 21. Uh, after the point of realisation, so it took three three years, um, between the point of realisation and being able to stop having the first drink. Uh, so I'm powerless over alcohol means Left to my own devices, I will have the first drink. When I've had the first drink, I do not know when I'm going to stop. A friend of mine relapsed in 1995, and it's 2019, and he's still out there. I, I don't know what's going to happen. And it is that that makes my life unmanageable. If I do not have the power to adjust the steering wheel of the car, I cannot manage the course of the car. If I do not, do not have the power to choose whether or not to drink and then what happens, I do not... I cannot manage my life. It's gone nuts. I may well be incompetent and neurotic and all of those other things that people often cite as examples of unmanageability, but I've sponsored people who are not neurotic, who are not incompetent, who in fact are, are more competent at living than most people I know who are 20 years sober. And yet, there is something deeply, profoundly wrong, be way below the level of consciousness which is impelling them to drink and they're in desperate condition. Now, I was an absolute wreck when I got to home. But those emotional problems uh, were not the cause of my alcoholism. There's, there's something else. And there's a, a fascinating passage in Fred's story in the big book where, uh, and it, it's interesting to me that they choose as their 
main example, he gets four whole pages in that in the chapter on alcoholism. Why not choose a typical AA member? Why not choose someone that is a roaring mess in the tornado roaring through someone else's life? I think they wanted to demonstrate that alcoholism is not about those things. You may well be a tornado. Fred wasn't, at least not in terms of the rest of his life. But he said that when he got sober and had a spiritual awakening, the worst of his life then beat hands down the best of his life before. So there was something missing that he was unaware of. And I'll come back to that. That's why I was drinking. Um, it wasn't the surface stuff. Surface stuff may have accelerated. Um, and as a friend of mine says, if that very deep problem is not treated in some way, it will treat itself. And sometimes people say alcoholism, the ism, is incredibly short memory. I do not have a generalized memory problem. If it was memory, if I did, that would explain it. But I believe, and this can't be proved, but I believe there is a bit of me which will suppress the truth in order to enable me to have another drink. I'm not forgetting it. Something in me is twisting reality because it, whatever it is, desperately needs relief and it will do anything to convince the, my frontal lobes to, to play ball. Um... The only reason I started to take the steps, the only reason I started to take AA seriously was because I literally had no other choice. I tried every way of doing AA other than just quietly submitting to it. Um, one sign of an ego which is still rampant, um, I'm like, I see it in sponsees where you try and introduce a new idea and they assimilate the new idea into the old information system. And the old information system is now inflated with the new idea, but the old information system is still there. It's like pouring clean water into a bucket of dirty water and thinking that <coughs> clean water is going to clean the dirty water. And I, would, I was trying to absorb all of this AA material in my first six months, but I hadn't subtracted the old belief system. And I was so broken, frankly, by July 1993. Uh, I didn't care a jot for anything that I thought or believed or thought I knew. I was just done. I just wanted someone to tell me what to do. And, and also, and this is very, it's a very unpopular thing to say, so I apologise. But by the way, if anyone dislikes anything I say, then... Um, Please use this as an opportunity to call your sponsor later on <laughs> this evening. Um, I've been reliably informed I'm uh, over 10,000 miles away from home. So with any luck at all, uh, unless we're just up the road tomorrow evening, you'll never, ever see me again. So there's no reason for any of us to pick a fight. Um, <laughs> but I need to so the controversial thing. Uh, I needed to be shown how to live in the rest of my life as well. Because I come from a family where everyone was mentally ill one way or another, and no one had a clue how to function normally and effectively. And I just needed to be sure that all of that old-fashioned AA, which is very commonly poo-pooed and denigrated, it saved my life because if I hadn't had those people to, to tell me what to do and show me how to live, where else was I going to go? Um... 
So I needed the whole kit and caboodle of the, the AA program plus that old-fashioned family style of, of AA where you just found the old-timers and you said, what do you think I should do in this situation? And then I just did it. And the reason it's unpopular is because I, I know people think you shouldn't worship a sponsor and so on, and I, I never did. But I trusted them because they were doing substantially better than me. That is why I trusted them. And if they turned out to have dud advice, I could just go to someone else. There are very, very few errors which can't be rectified. And I don't know about you, but I've had to make a lot of amends in my life. I have never had to make amends for an action that I took under the instruction of a sponsor. Now, maybe you have, but I haven't. This tells me something. All the things I've ever had to make amends for were... It was things I thought up all on my own. <laughs> Anything my sponsor has to suggest, even if it's meh, is going to be better than my own best plan. So I still really trust my sponsor and his sponsor and his sponsor's wife, who's the one I really go to. When I <laughs> Don't tell anyone. I know you won't. Um... Step two, um, I'm going to cover the gaudy stuff in step three, but step two in a very basic sense to me is this. Uh, I'm going to die unless something radical changes. You have a system to bring about that change. It works for you, so it's going to work for me. That's all observation and logic. You don't need to get into theology with any of that. The only faith I needed was the courage to take the actions that you had taken. And I got that courage from you, actually via you from the higher power. But when you're new, it looks like it's coming from the people around you who are encouraging. <coughs> and frankly, that's sufficient. If someone wants to have a discussion about theology, I will give you a list of theological colleges. Lots of them run like courses. Um, whatever question you've got about God, philosophers and theologians have been thinking about the same questions for centuries. Go and read what they say about it. It'll be far better than anything I have to offer. However, I will say a few things about step three. Um, the reason I needed to turn my will and life over to the care of God was because there was a ticking time bomb in my mind. And sometimes they say in AA, they, whoever they are, they say in AA, it's not a race. It so is a race, but it's not a race against Susan on the other side of the room. You know, little Miss Perfect. I hope there isn't a Susan in the room if there is. <laughs> but she may well be little Miss Perfect. Um, the race is not against anyone else. The race is against the ticking time bomb in my mind because the point about alcoholism is there aren't going to be trumpets when alcoholism kicks off again. Uh, you're not going to get sufficient warning to suddenly, you know, quick, get back on the program. It just hits you, boom, you're drunk. So that's a, it's the race against that. So what's the solution? Well, if I am a liability to myself because uh, there's a little neuron in my mind, which if it misfires, I'm going to go to the pub, but I don't know which one it is. <laughs> I can't go in there and extract it with a magic wand. Um, I've got to not be in charge of my life. And because I don't know which neuron it is, I've got to be not in charge of any of my life. If I'm the one picking 
which bits I give to a higher power, which bits I don't. I'm still in charge. It's just like I've got, I've had sponsees that say to me, uh, they'll come to me with a, with a problem uh, and I'll make a suggestion and they'll say, I agree with that. Agreed. And I'm, does that mean if you didn't agree, you wouldn't take the idea on board? That's the same thing as pouring the, the clean water into the dirty water. It's when I get to choose what I'm going to accept and reject from what, say, a sponsor says or what the program says, all I'm doing is finding the bits of the program which adapt to my existing belief system. I'm not getting rid of the old belief system. I'm, I'm just going to reconstruct it and add material to justify it. So step three has to be turning the whole kit and caboodle over to a higher power. What that means, I'll come to. But what's interesting, it, it convinces you by page 60 that that's where we're going with this. Um, but then it gives me, at any rate, a whole load of other reasons why it might be a smart move anyway to give over all of the other questions, and not just alcohol, to the higher power. And uh, the first line is, I mean, just the first line alone is a killer. The first requirement, not suggestion. We're done with the suggestions bit because... I, I went to a restaurant... Okay, a few years ago... I like this story, so indulge me. A few years ago, I was in a city in France with some friends. It was three o'clock. We wanted lunch. Everywhere was shutting. I went on to TripAdvisor. There were 900 restaurants in this city. The number one restaurant in this city was like a 100 yards away. Round the So we went round, and it was a hole-in-the-wall place with a man who was the chef, the waiter, and doing the washing up. Um, wonky teeth <laughs> best restaurant in Montpellier and we went in and we said are you still doing lunch and he said je vous propose I suggest to you and then gave us the thing that he was doing one dish there was just one dish and one of us said well do you have anything else he said no so he's suggesting this to us but there's nothing else on the menu <laughs> so we can suggest to you when we suggest to you the 12 steps, we're not saying we have anything else on the menu. We literally have nothing else. So you are free to take it or not take it. But we're not going to concoct like an alternative program if you turn your nose up at it. But if you take it on, it becomes requirements. And you can leave at any time. When people say they don't like my home group, I'm like, you don't have to go. <laughs> when, people don't like my, when people don't like my sponsorship, go and get someone else. <laughs> if it's causing you that much pain, I don't want to be the cause of that much pain in anyone's life. So anyway, the first, I will get to step, the rest of step three. We may not get through this one line. The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. The trouble is with these readings, you hear them so often you forget what they actually mean. What that means to me is what I want, if I build my life based on what I want, it's not going to work. And yet how often in my mind do sentences start with, I want, like it means anything, <laughs> like it matters, like it's a basis for decision making. And this is the first idea that um, what I want is not going to work, and it's going to explain why. Um, 
each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. And he goes on to say, you know, sometimes he's a bit of a jerk about it to get his own way, and sometimes he's nice. Um, And I didn't know that I was self-centered. In fact, when people accused me of being selfish, I was offended. I thought this was a slur. Now, because I'm a nice boy, I was brought up well. I knew how to behave if I needed to behave well. So I wasn't good. Uh, I was just nice. And there's a big difference between between those two. Um, uh, and I was nice when it served me well. But this self-centeredness, the test for this, my sponsor gave this to me once, is spend... 24 hours, or at least the waking portion of 24 hours, with a pen and piece of paper in your pocket. Every half hour, you write down what your predominant thinking has been about in the last half hour. Just a few words, and then you look at the end of the day, and you see how many of those topics concerned your welfare, (laughs) one way or another. Did they, you know, do they concern what other people think of you? Pride. Do they concern what you think of you, self-esteem? Do they concern how other people treat you, personal relations, sex relations? Do they concern what you want, ambitions, what you need, your security or your property or possessions, pocketbooks? And unfortunately, the diagnosis self-centered. It's just a technical diagnosis. It's not a moral slur. It's just a fact. My life was centered on me. But there's no nobility to it. It was... I felt with the tiniest thing that my life was on the line. So that, and I had this for many years in, into recovery. When you get an email from a client, uh, I work through agencies and there are clients at the end, and sometimes the subject of the email will say, client feedback. <laughs> and immediately, and you know, those, those, those never end well. Well, maybe one out of five times, you know, if it's good, you never see them again, you just get the check. If it's bad, you're going to hear about it. You see the phrase client feedback. And my, it would feel, you know those cartoons where someone's stomach, like, literally leaps out and hits the floor? That's, that is what it felt like. I was responding to everything in my life like it was life and death. It felt like, it felt like, I imagine, I imagine cavemen would have felt with a saber-toothed tiger coming at them. The slightest insult, the slightest slight was enough to make me feel insecure, to put me on the warpath, to put me on the defensive. And you have to, there's something fishy going on. It, I mean, even I realised that I was overreacting a little to ordinary, everyday events. And the truth of it, to boil, I mean, one could talk for a long time about this, but the truth of it, to boil it down, I did not, in my own mind, I did not exist unless I was special, unless I was on a pedestal, being praised, being hated, being somethinged, but having a spotlight. And my special speciality was special relationships with special people. This is where you pick, you realize there is some sort of emptiness inside you. So you find someone you think is special and you say, 
if I give you my emptiness, will you give me you? <laughs> and then if I can have your specialness, I will now be fixed and special and I'll be okay. And you'll be left with me, but you'll just have to deal with that. <laughs> behind that deal is a fundamental deceit. I'm going to get rid of something I don't want, which is me. And I'm going to get something great, which is you. And that will produce in me a sense of guilt, which I then project onto you and discover. And, you know, after the honeymoon phase, you start to see everything wrong with the other person. <laughs> That's what's going on there. That guilt is finding a way out, except I can't look at the guilt in me. I have to see it in you. Whenever I see something wrong with you, I'm seeing my own guilt that I don't want. My own darkness, which I don't want to look at, I can't get rid of it. So I see it outside myself. And the other person is doing exactly the same thing. And then I say, I'm having, for my sponsor, I'm having trouble with my relationship. <laughs> and my sponsor's sponsor's sponsor said, I don't know how to have a healthy, sick relationship. And a sick, <laughs> a sick relationship is when I'm trying to get rid, I'm trying to mend my wounded self-esteem by replaying the same script, getting the ending to change this time. And I can find the person to play this game with. I can, you walk into a room, your eyes lock, and you know they are the next eligible candidate, and you know they've seen it too. And this time, just like with alcohol, this time it'll be different. But the whole thing is about specialness. I am going to be special. I'm going to be safe, and that specialness will protect me against what is essentially a cruel world, which I have to grasp things from. That's me as the actor trying to run the show, is trying to find a way to live in the world which ensures that I am on the pedestal in the centre of the stage with everyone loving me, except everyone else is after the same thing. If we're all special, what does any of it mean? So this is a fight to the death. The interesting line there is we're actors... So this whole charade in the material world is a play, except I've forgotten that I'm the actor. I think I'm the character. So when another character stabs, you know, you're in Macbeth, there's a lot of blood. When one character stabs another character, the character dies. The actor doesn't die. Now, if the, if the actor believes he's the character, he's going to die with the character. That's why everything felt like it was a fight to the death. And yet I would come to the next day or the next month and be ready for battle again. It doesn't make any sense unless, until I realized this was way after step three. The game I'm playing out here is not what it's all about. There is a higher reality. It's going to talk about it later in the book. Feet on the ground, but head in the clouds. And it's going to say in step time, we, we entered the world of the spirit. My body has not gone anywhere. But my, I have entered the realm of the spirit. I am not my physical body, my form, where I've come from, my family, my history, my beliefs, my character defects. I am not any of those things. My physical life is my communication device between spirit and the rest of the world. But back to step three. The reason that whole system doesn't work is because... I was living in a universe where I needed to be in the center and other people were living in a universe where they needed to be the center. It was only going to produce conflict. And my narrative as to what was going on was not what was going on. I learned that in step nine. Every step nine I did, it said nine out of 10 
situations, the unexpected happens, which means the story that was told back to me about how I'd actually harmed people bore no resemblance to my rotten little list that was the best I could do, but it bore no resemblance. I was in a little world trapped on my own, and I had occasional allies, but I was alone because no one shared my illusions, no one shared my story, no one shared my narrative, no one shared my perspective. If you were useful to me, great, but I'm, I'm going to sleep with one eye open. Mm. This does not work. Of course, you can't tell any, any, anyone that. So if you're in your first 10 years, there's a chance that you'll give this a go. You know, <laughs> even so, but just a chance. The smart money is on not giving it a go. Yeah, give it up now. But the, the amazing line here, is he not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? Is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if he only manages well? I felt like the world had to give me happiness. That if I arranged my external circumstances in a particular way, if I got the configuration right, if I got all the ducks in a row, if I got the ducks to quack, the magical music of the quacking ducks would cause a little pop in my mind and I'd be at peace. <laughs> Have you ever got something you've worked for for years and for about 10 minutes you're fine and then the cold wind starts blowing and you think, <laughs> firstly, what was that even about? And secondly, right, now I'm really going to fix it. <laughs> It does not work. Is he not a victim of the delusion and the, the horror that we haven't got to the horrific bit? It's a delusion. So when I'm in it, it will strike me as entirely plausible that if I get a job, I'll be okay. That if the person physically recovers from their illness and doesn't die, I'm going to be okay. That if the environment is fixed, I'm going to be okay. And if it's not, I won't. If the political system calms down, I'm going to be okay. The delusion comes in a thousand forms, and it's never going to work. This is the thing that my sponsor has hammered home to me again and again and again, is that my system doesn't work because the thing that I'm fixing on the outside, the problems I'm seeing on the outside are a projection of something inside me. So if I fix the thing outside there, it's not going to fix the thing inside me. The picture of the world I'm seeing is a projection from inside my mind. The projector, the real needs changing in the projector. You change the screen on which the film is playing, the film is going to be the same. Something fundamental needed to change. The problem deep inside was that I liked being alone. I liked being separate. I liked being different. I liked being special because it meant I existed. And that was the real prize I didn't want to give up. I was willing to go through all that pain. The most terrifying thought, there's a story which Anthony DeMello tells about this salt doll. What is a salt doll? This doll-shaped thing made of salt. And it's running around the world saying, where do I belong? Where do I belong? Because no one's ever heard of a salt doll. No one knows where the salt doll belongs. And it finds the ocean. And it starts to wade into the ocean. As it wades into the ocean, it starts to dissolve. 
And in the moment before it finally dissolves, it says to itself, aha, that's what I am. But this is the most terrifying story to the ego. It talks about it in the 12 and 12. It's a different metaphor. The hole in the donut. I will cease to exist. And of course, when I'm dissolved into the whole, I don't cease to exist. I'm still as there as I ever was. But without this illusion of separateness and specialness, I'm just part of... I, I was willing to give up everything for the one moment of glory. And what God is saying to me is you can have everything. I don't mean materially, of course. You can be part of the universe. You can be so fused into it, you feel its energy running through you. And that sounds hokey until you realize that, and probably most of you have sat in an AA meeting, where even if it's just for a few fleeting moments, someone tells a funny story and you think, I'm at home. This is okay. If this is the, as good as it gets, this is fine by me. I'm surrounded by friends. My life is terrible, but I'm fine. It's that feeling. And taking step three and the rest of the steps allow me to generalize that feeling of okayness, which I had in the occasional AA meeting, and experience it all across my life. So this so-called self-sacrifice that it talks about in Bill's story the self that I'm sacrificing is the tiny mad idea of the ego that I'm better off sacrificing all of you to have my little moment of glory. What I'm sacrificing is a lie and a delusion, and I'm being relieved of something. If I think I'm giving up something of value and giving up that separateness and specialness, I'll never let it go. The practical side of this um, is the actual taking of step three. And I love the, the wording and the imagery. Um, uh, we had to quit playing God, it didn't work. Um, we, we decided that here and after in this drama of life, it's underlining again, there is a greater reality. This thing we're doing here is not for the reason that I thought it was. It's for me to wake up and it's for you to wake up and find our way home as my sponsor. God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We're his agents. He is the father. We're his children. And um, I'm just going to say one thing about the implementation. For the implementation, say the prayer, do the rest of the sets, do what your sponsor says, find a good home group, study the traditions, study the concepts, sponsor an eye-watering number of people, do shed loads of service, call your mother every day. Just do those things, it'll be fine. But the important thing here, um, there are lots of technicians that can tell you about that kind of stuff, but it's the, it's the images it uses here. Here's the father with his children. And it's not just a nice image. The idea that it's suggesting to me, I'm going to take it at face value. Let's pretend for a moment they meant what they said and they weren't mincing their words. They were just saying it straight. That means that we are children of God and offspring are made of the same substance as the parent. So that means whatever God is, spirit, energy, blah, 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 I am. And anything I think I am, like my physical body, that ain't, that ain't me. That's where I'm currently living. And Lamott says that uh, death is a fairly major change of address. Um, <laughs> so I cannot be high. If I'm spirit, if I'm not my physical form, if I'm not my physical life, I cannot be harmed, which will free up the whole day. 
it's amazing how much you can get done when, when you don't care, <laughs> when you just have what is in front of you to do. Um, principles and agents. Um, uh, shipping agents will look after, so let's say you've got a, a ship owner in Piraeus in Greece and the ship is going all around the Baltic and it'll have a shipping agent in, in, in Riga to deal with all of the, 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 the unloading and the loading and the cargo and the port authorities and the quarantine. And there's a lot of work to do. The ship owner can't do any of the work. It has to be the agent in Riga who does all the work. But none of it is any, any skin off the ship agent's nose. He just does the work and goes home afterwards and gets paid by the ship owner. In my life, uh, it doesn't matter. My career, my money, my financial situation, I've been given those things to take care of. But they're not on my account. They're on my higher powers account. They're entrusted to me. And so my ultimate trust has to be in God, in God. My direct trust, not even through those things, but direct trust has to be in God. And I've always been, I've always been looked after. Um, this idea of, of a director and actor, um, you could either look at it from a theatre point of view or a commercial point of view. And I, I think both are useful. Um, I've spent too much of my life in the boardroom of the world, uh, trying to construct plans, literally plans for the world. If only the world would do this, that, and the other. If only my country would do this, that, and other, all sorts of other problems would be solved. I don't belong in the boardroom except once a day when I go up to my higher power and say, right, what do you want me to do today? And amazingly, I'm not given major problems to solve. I'm given the tasks of the next 24 hours. How about I just do what's in front of me and stay out of the drama, stay out of the, stay out of all of those narratives, exciting as they are. They are not right here. They're not right now. They're not real. Um, What step three, and it is a decision to get on with the rest of the steps, but there is the, the, the spiritual side. There has to be, for me, uh, an agreement in principle to do God's will, whatever the consequences appear to me. And I've had times, so I had a, 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 a terrible entanglement. I'm going to finish on this. About 10 years ago, I got uh, uh, emotionally entangled with a, uh, a very, very close friend who was in full-blown, catastrophic, very dramatic relapse. Uh, and it was asserted by my sponsor that my constant rescuing and propping up was stopping this person from hitting their rock bottom and doing what they needed to do. And he said, you need to write a letter to this person to say you have to cut all ties. Don't leave any loopholes. Don't leave any back doors in for this friendship to continue it's got to stop it's got to stop now or it's going to kill him and it's going to kill you and i have to say when i wrote that letter and sent it which i did because i trusted my sponsor this was the most profound act of step three that i've ever taken because i was i felt worse that day than i had at any point in my drinking 
because of how close I felt to this friend. But I trusted. And that's what it's going to require. It's in those particular moments. I don't like to think what would have happened if I'd yielded to other impulses and stuck my middle finger up at my sponsor. If I'd done nothing else but just surrendered on that, I think I would have been all right. If I'd done everything right but not surrendered on that, I don't think he'd be sober today. I don't think I'd be sober today. We're actually still best friends now. We got, you know, after he got well, finished his amends, started sponsoring people, we resumed the friendship. It's fine. We both made amends to each other. It got disentangled. It shouldn't have worked, but it did. But it's in those moments when my instinct is crying out against something that someone else's common sense is telling me to do the opposite of my instinct. If I trust that person, that's step three in practice. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.